Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. Today we're talking to Professor Alan Daly about his work with social network theory. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and Alan's enthusiasm is infectious. His sense of humour went down well with us as well. Early in the conversation, Alan reminds us that education is a people system. Um, We know this, we live this. How has this got lost? We hear how social network theory can help us to understand improvement work in our schools, in our local authorities, our RICs and even nationally. It really made me want to get out my Sharpies and flip chart paper and you'll hear um, from Alan just how accurate I would be if I did that. There's some great practical ideas as well as bigger concepts for us to play around with and I was really struck by the connection between Alan's work and the human paradigm that Michael Fullan talked about a few episodes back. And just as Michael warned us, Alan also warns us that there's a small window here, a small window for change and we need to take this, we need to grasp it, we need to run with it because the pool of the familiar and the comfortable is strong and intense and maybe we can even begin to feel ourselves slipping back to old ways. So as you listen to this conversation, we urge you to think about how you can be brave and courageous in this time. Today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Alan Daly, all the way from San Diego. And Alan, how are you today? And what's the weather like with you? Because we like our weather chat in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) This I know. I've got dear colleagues in the UK. So I'm well versed in all things weather. Um, It's lovely to be here with you, Sarah and Billy. Thank you for having me. I am in sunny San Diego, California. We have a very narrow range of weather here. Our degrees don't go up more than five or down more than five. And if they do, they consider it to be weather-geddon. And there's all kinds of alerts on the radio that we are down to 20 degrees Celsius, bundle up, wear your gloves and (laughs) make sure you're all set. (laughs) So yeah, it's wonderful to be here. And I love the UK, particularly Scotland. It's a beautiful place. So thank you for having me. No, you're you're very welcome, and uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I first came across your work when I met um, Paul Bloomberg a couple of years ago, or maybe even three years ago now, um, when he was over in the UK doing some work with some schools down in England, and he mentioned your work, and I, I have your book. Um, we love books on this podcast, so um, it's always great to speak to the author of some of the books that's 
that I have on my, my bookshelf that I dip in and out of. But um, for those who aren't familiar with your work, can you just give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself and the work that you, you do? Sure. This, this isn't the food and wine podcast where I just talk about <laughs> cool restaurants I like to go to. Well, we'll have to good, we'll have to weave that in. Um, my work is, well, first of all, thank you. Thanks for buying the book. I'd like to apologize for the cover in advance. If you haven't seen the book, it's, a, it's got a very vibrant yellow cover and it spells out social network theory and educational change on the front, but it looks like it's a ransom note. So just to be clear, it's uh, there's no ransom attached to this. Um, but I study social networks. And when I say that, a lot of times people think, oh, Facebook and Instagram and things like that. And although I do study that stuff, that's not the primary focus of what I mean by social networks. I'm interested in the quantity and quality of relationships that people have, how they interact with one another, what those relationships afford an individual as well as constrain, and then how we might build and nurture those kinds of relationships. So when I think about social networks, think of it slightly differently. I'll probably complicate that later in the podcast because I'll talk about some work we're doing on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, if you remind me, um, I'll talk about that. Or if you're just trying to get me off, make sure and don't mention anything about Twitter. No, that's that brilliant. So um, tell us a little bit about how you've worked with with schools over the over the years. How, how have you developed a relationship with schools and the work of education? Yeah, I think this is one of the most critical things. So maybe maybe a little bit of background uh, mm -hmm. would be in order. So um, I'm the first in my family to go to college. Um, I no one else in my family had gone. They didn't quite understand what that meant. And probably questioned my sanity for choosing that route. Um, but I had deep connection to education. My, both my grandmother and my mom were uh, both cafeteria ladies. So they worked in schools and they knew about schools. And when I got older, I eventually majored in philosophy and uh, psychology because I really wanted to make sure I wouldn't get a job anywhere. Uh, and also doing that, I wisely uh, minored in education and became an elementary school teacher and was in public education for about 16 years. So I did that as a school psychologist. I was a site administrator. So I've had a lot of different roles in public education. I spent the last 16 years of my career at the university. So I've been in public education for about 32 years now. And if you look at my career, it's, it's directly on what you were talking about, Sarah. It's this intersection between um, practice and research. And I think that's the really special point. And, and I believe deeply in my work as a practitioner and as a scholar that relationships are really front and center and that all voices are critical and all voices are needed. And one of the tragic things I learned as I was entering this field is that folks like my mom and my grandmother were in the background. They were not seen as being critical roles in the work of education. They were cogs in the machine. And I think that's unfortunate because I think the some of the issues that we're facing today and have been facing for a long time require all hands on deck and all voices present. Uh, I think that's really critical. So in my work, I have a deep, deep respect for the work of practitioners. I care about work that actually has some direct impact on practice. And I have a number of clo really close partnerships with schools because I believe that 
expertise doesn't live in the academy. It can live in schools. It can live in classrooms. It can live in communities. And our job is to raise up those voices and try to be really thoughtful about how we engage them to make a difference across not just the schools I work with, but really across the globe. Yeah. What's been the most interesting thing? That's a really difficult question to answer, I'm sure. But what's been the most interesting thing that you've learned during your career about education? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a big one. Um, (laughs) So maybe maybe I'll just share like maybe the most surprising thing to me, actually. So if you think about like schools and school districts and I do a lot of work internationally, Um, I'm going to say there's two surprising things I want to name. One, I'll start more nationally in the U.S. and I'll branch out internationally. The first thing that was surprising to me is if you look at the budgets of schools and school districts, they're somewhere between 85 and 95 percent salaries, like people. It is a people system, Mm -hmm. which is a wonderful thing, right? Like we serve people, we're comprised by people, our budgets are dedicated towards people. But for the love of goodness, we somehow have forgotten that for a long time. And we focused on the technical elements of education. Like only if we were all on page 10 at 930 in the morning, everything would be fine. Or if only we opened up everybody's heads and filled it full of more information, Mm. we'd be all fine. And I refer to that as like a human capital model. And, And the work that I'm trying to do is around this social capital model that that it's actually about the relationships and our connections in which we can share expertise. So the biggest surprising thing for me, Sarah, honestly, was that I had such a hard slog to convince people that we ought to pay more attention to the relationships because the default position was always around, let's have more professional development. Now, before everybody in your audience freaks out, it's not that I'm not a fan of professional development. I think it's super important. But when I think about it, it's a background foreground issue. In education for a long time, we foreground the human capital element. We background the social capital. We're like, all these relationships and collaboration will just happen Mm because naturally we're people and they should just happen. What I'm suggesting is we actually flip that, that we lead with the relationships and we follow with the development that has to be in place. And What was surprising to me is to me that seems so abundantly obvious and it's the way that I approach my practice and my scholarship, but there is such a strong pull in the educational system to do the human capital first and then the social capital. Mm -hmm. So that's been a really big surprising thing for me. I'll more to say about that later because I think I see some shifts on the horizon. And then the second surprising thing, um, and this is at an international level, Mm -hmm. is that while contexts greatly differ, And I've had experiences in Europe, in the UK, in Asia, in Australia, in New Zealand, and Canada, all over the place. I've been really fortunate. I've done a number of um, Fulbrights. Mm -hmm. And even though contexts change, some of the issues that educators are wrestling with are really pretty fundamentally the same. Mm-hmm. How do we help provide voice to the voiceless? How do we help marginalize communities? How do we bridge senses of belonging for communities? How do we help teachers to nurture and support the conditions for good exchanges to happen? These are issues that cut across all contexts. And I think sometimes we forget the humanness of our work. Mm-hmm. And we, while the context is important, sometimes we overprivilege that. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's fascinating what you say about 
you know, it's a people system and we we haven't had the focus on that necessarily. And, and it really resonates with conversations that I was having today um, in, a, in a slightly different way. But it was about, you, you know, why is it taking us so long to recognize the human and the people in the system and put that at the very front? And although we've learned a lot over the years, and I would say particularly in Scotland, there's been a focus on relationships, on nurture, on um, collaboration, on working together over the years. We're, we're still not that good at it. We've still got a long way to go. And what is it that's getting in the way of us making the progress we should be making, to be honest? Yeah. I, th yeah. And so the, here's another example, Sarah, in which in Scotland, you know, 10,000 kilometers away from San Diego, that's exactly the same issue that we're wrestling with. And I, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I told you I had training as a psychologist. So at the end of the day, dealing with people's emotional state and their affective state and their sets of relationships is complex, messy, takes a lot of time. It is way easier to like crank out a new reading program. Not that a new reading program isn't important, yeah. but, you know, people feel like they can get better bang for their buck, so to speak, in those areas. But I promise you, whatever reform, whatever change, whatever whatever anything you wanna do inside these people systems yeah. is gonna require relationships. And so why not build the ecosystems necessary at the front end to manage the next wave of change that will wash over education next year, next month, mm -hmm. 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. Do you think that the best teachers going back over time, and maybe think there's some of the teachers that we will have had though, that they did that, maybe they didn't know it, but they would have had the, the people part front and center. They could connect with people, motivate, build those relationships. Um, but and and certainly I agree that as a the, the focus on the system is is not as strong on that as it should be. But that's because we want to put things in at system level that you can you can measure and get an outcome quite quickly on. Yeah, this is a great question, Billy, and, great, and a great thought. Um, we should really be doing the podcast about you and Sarah. <laughs> I should be interviewing you guys. Um, you know, if you reflect back on your own experience, or I even reflect back on my own experience, it is not that I'm remembering the teacher that was fabulous at teaching me the algebra equation, although that's certainly important. I can distinctly remember Mrs. Goodrich who made me feel like I could do something. I don't know what the hell she was teaching me quite honestly, um, but I felt like I could do, so. I felt I had efficacy in her classroom. And that was a game changer for me, for someone who didn't come from a family that was oriented towards schooling and didn't value it that much to be quite frank. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at studies at people at the end of their lives, they're not like, oh, I wish I had worked one more day, or if only I could have gotten that Excel spreadsheet to calculate out <laughs> this equation, right? Like they're reflecting back on the relationships that they had, didn't have, were joyous or were troubling, right? At the end, we're, we are social beings, and somehow in an education space, which is probably one of the most social spaces, we've divorced that away from the work because it feels too soft or it doesn't feel engaged enough or it's just too much, too messy. But I think to your point, Billy, my own lived experience and the experience I've had doing scholarship and working in schools would suggest that 
the teachers that are really out in front are those ones that that intuitively connect with the other or they prize it and they value it and importantly they're able to buffer the pressure that they get to do more of that technical stuff so it's no easy feat to put the to put the intuitive human relationship first it's a really challenging feat to buffer against all the stuff that's coming at you and imagine being a first year teacher when you're trying to figure that out so mm -hmm. I think we've got to think more about the conditions that we build, nurture, and support to enable the kinds of interactions that we're all talking about here today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we've been thinking a bit about um, new teachers ourselves recently, and we're going to do an episode focusing on, you know, not advice is probably not the right word that we're, we're looking for, but it's the only one I've got at the moment. But what, you know, advice or messages would we give to newly qualified teachers to help them navigate their way through the first days, the first weeks and, and the first year of, of teaching? And we've asked on Twitter and you've mentioned Twitter already. So I'm, I'm interested to hear what more you're going to say about Twitter later. But we've asked teachers to, to share their kind of messages and advice and relationships, focusing on relationships, both with the adults and the young people, um, has definitely come through as a, as a key theme that people are encouraging uh, newly qualified teachers to, to make that a priority, make that a focus. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, for the three of us, that's probably not surprising, probably to many of your listeners, not surprising. The, the trick is how do we turn that into policy and practices within schools? And <clears throat> I think, you know, it, this pandemic has taught us several things, uh, at least here in the United States, many of which are deeply troubling, but it's taught us several things, I think, worldwide, which is we are more interconnected and interdependent than we may have realized, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important message. The second thing I think that it's taught us is the real value of relationships mm -hmm. and how do we build and nurture those? And you know, I want to offer your listeners the, like a caution. We're starting to come out of this, hopefully. And um, people can't wait to get back to normal, right? And so when people return to schools as they're doing now in Scotland and all over the world, there's going to be a huge drive to get things back to normal. And what normal means is what it felt like what we did 18 months ago or 20 months ago. And some of that stuff that we did 18 or 20 months ago was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Some of it wasn't so great for particular populations, mm -hmm. right? And so there's going to be an incredible suck of the system to go back to the inertia of the way things will be, were, because that will feel comfortable and safe, right? Mm -hmm. We are going to have a very short, intense vacuum of space in which we can actually enter in new ways of being, new ways of interacting, and new ways of thinking. This is only going to happen in a very short period of space because the, the strength, the inertia of the systems are so strong to pull things back to how they were because that will just make people feel okay inside, right? Mm -hmm. So the message, I think, for all of us in education that care about education at whatever level we find ourselves is that we will have a short moment to enter in the value of importance and well-being and a sense of belonging and the critical nature of our relationships as being front and central to any kinds of changes that are going to happen. Absent that interjection into this short vacuum we're going to have, 
we will quickly return to business as usual, which will also mean that we will continue structural inequalities which have existed for a long, long time. So mm-hmm. we are at a sense of, I, I feel a real sense of urgency right now. Agreed. And the importance of relationships was thinking back to the education world that we work in. Um, and you mentioned the, the impact of the pandemic. One of the things that has come out in a positive way is that we can collaborate more easily. Um, you know, as you have breakfast over there and we have dinner over here. Uh, so, but, you know, collaboration has been around a long time and there's general acceptance that that would be a good thing. But it doesn't always uh, transpire as proper collaboration. What, what's been your learning about where collaboration results in the best impact for people? Yeah, thank you for that question. I, um, I I do want to say something about the virtual space at some point um, because I think it's there's been a number of affordances, and you beautifully articulated that. I'm here having my um, my coffee in the morning, and you're having your pint in the afternoon, and this is great. We can still <laughs> interact. Yeah, read, just to be clear, listeners, there's no evidence of any pints <laughs> that are <laughs> not <that> yet. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, at least where this is a fully sober podcast, um, at least for the moment until Sarah and Billy start drinking after listening to me for another 10 minutes, <laughs> which and all of you out in the audience is probably going to increase alcoholism with this one set of interviews. Um, but I think it's provided some affordances, as I just described, uh, and some constraints, which I think we can talk about uh, later. But let's just think about this question around collaboration. Um, First of all, I think that we have made the assumption that collaboration is a pretty easy thing to do. Uh, We have said to a bunch of, I don't know, third grade teachers or leaders, uh, okay, go to a training on collaboration on a Tuesday. And then Wednesday commence commence collaboration, right? As if somehow that's something we can immediately train and do. And in fact, we don't, we spend very little time actually teaching people the skills and the moves that are necessary to actually engage in collaboration, right? It's a sophisticated set of interactions that are required uh, for me to actively listen to you, to hear not just the content of what you're sharing, but also the affect of what you're sharing, to then build on your ideas and not tear them down, to validate your opinions, not invalidate them, to ask questions rather than always advocate for a position, to recognize that all voices are heard, to incorporate. And this is a really difficult set of skills. And yet we sort of assume that people will come naturally with these sets of skills. We would never send anybody else out in the world like a mechanic or a teacher who has many years of training and say, go and teach without being formally taught how to do this thing. And yet we do this constantly with collaboration. So Billy, I'm sorry, it looked like you were about to ask me something, but I went off on this tirade about No, no, I'm actually fascinated in what you're saying. It's also got me thinking about collaboration amongst young people. (laughs) You know, we we have things like cooperative learning and active learning, Um, but you're right. How much do we actually invest in the the complex skills, because it, it is social interaction is so complex. There's so many nuances, body language, tone. Um, so you think we need to invest more in actually exploring how best to collaborate and not just assume that professionals or pupils or young people can just do it. Well, I will tell you, using the US as an example, 
All one has to do is to look at the level of discourse that is happening publicly, politically, to know that civility and our ability to thoughtfully and respectfully engage in one another, to encourage diverse perspectives, to appreciate different viewpoints. Like, you just can't look around and think, oh yeah, everything's cool. And, or, and think somehow that's not gonna move into the schoolroom or the classroom, right? So this is a really rich set of complex skills that are necessary. And I, I think we just bypass them ever so quickly. And, and I think also, I mean, I know we're, we were just mentioning teachers. I really want to speak to the leaders. And, and at the leadership level, this is an even more complex set of interactions, right? Because you're balancing maybe headquarters and, and uh, district offices and schools and communities. And like, imagine that level of sets of interactions. So, and if I think back to my own leadership training, maybe I had some few sessions on like, you know, team building, (laughs) but it was nothing explicit. And, and I I was trained as a psychologist. So Mm. presumably I had some additional set of, not presumably, I actually did have some additional sets of training and skills that I think enabled me to be able to negotiate some complex situations, but my colleagues didn't. And Mm. they ended up sometimes like escalating situations when they could have been de-escalating them and engaging with people rather than isolating them. So I think we've lived this dream that just for the mere fact that we're human and we can speak and tweet, that somehow we come equipped with all these skills that are necessary to engage at this deep relational level. Mm. That's, that's about, I suppose, as a school leader, that completely resonates with me I'm thinking how many times have I just set up a time and a space and, and people and assumed that, well, they've got now the time, the space, they've got each other, they will be able to collaborate. Um, it's more complex than that, isn't it? It is, I think. And, you know, and and I think it's at this point in the conversation where some people could throw up their hands and just say, well, it's so complex, what can we possibly do? And, oh, my God, you know, like, how the heck are we going to make this happen, right? Like, that's that would be a completely normal and understandable reaction. And... Uh, we need to get over it and move on, right? Like we need to, just because something is hard, we've done a lot of hard things. And just because something is hard means all the more reason to engage it, right? Um, And and I think in some ways we've become so distal from the fact that as human beings, we're social creatures. We grew up in tribal communities. We were connected. We relied on one another. I'm I'm reminded of that now. I we um, we you know sometimes you go to the grocery store and you push your cart up to the front and you're ready to check out and there's like a chocolate bars and soda and potato chips and all the things you you know your mom told you you shouldn't be buying and eating but you do it anyway. It's like an impulse buy and and the grocery stores count on that right. Mm-hmm. So over the pandemic. I too made impulse purchase. It just happened to be a house in New Mexico. <laughs> and so, so we impressive. bought this place. Yeah, we bought this. Yeah, this is a major impulse buy. <laughs> so we bought this place in New Mexico. We still live here in Tineo. We bought a place in New Mexico. And it's a very rural community. Like you go to the middle of nowhere, drive four streets over, and then you're pretty close to where we are, <laughs> right? And And what became abundantly clear to me in these rural communities is that people are looking out for one another. 
They pay attention when you're not home. They pay attention when something looks awry. They ask you when they travel to the next town, which is a good 45 minutes away before you hit the next stoplight, if you need something. Mm -hmm. This is who we are as human beings. And we've built these walls, both physical, emotional, and relational ones to isolate ourselves. And what you, what you know inside your heart as a human being is that we are deeply relational. So part of it is the training and skills that are necessary. Part of it is just reminding people that at the end of the day, we're human beings interacting with other human beings. Mm -hmm. We're part of something bigger. And that can feel so far away from us when we're in the middle of doing our work or in the middle of trying to get something done. But I guess what I wanna say, like what you did as a leader, Billy, is you created the oasis of space for people to actually engage and reconnect with their own sense of humanity and humility towards one another. And I think to me, that's what's so critical. Mm. So with that in mind, what does social network theory mean for us in education? What does it, how does it articulate in education? Yeah, not at all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, sorry, listeners, you've been listening for 30 minutes and disconnecting. <laughs> um, okay, so what I think is helpful for social network theory and analysis for our own work is that first and foremost, it privileges the relationships. It makes a larger argument that we are part of a larger social structure, right? That... Um, and if I think about my own life, um, I, I, in my own social network, there was no one that went to college. Like if I wanted to get stuff done in construction or, or learn how to serve meals in a school, like I had plenty of folks that could help me do that. My relationships are really strong and powerful for getting that done. But I didn't have any sets of relationships that would enable me to talk to somebody about going to college or that anybody could recognize that in me. And so the general discourse is that therefore somehow I, I as an individual are a deficit. I'm not smart enough that it, this has nothing to do with me at all. And it has everything to do with the opportunities that my relationships afford me or constrain me from being able to do, right? Mm -hmm. So let's take an example of education. So for a while here in the US and I think abroad, there's this big push around value add. Right. So we're going to look at teachers and we're going to rate them on how much value they added to an individual student. And if you look at the measures of those things, they were really primarily solely teacher driven. Right. It was all about what you did as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you right now, I started my first teaching assignment was in sixth grade and I entered the sixth grade team. There were three other sixth grade teachers and we met together, we planned together. I was a new teacher. They helped mentor me. They supported me. They showed me material. They gave me tips and tricks. They were there to help me and lift me up when I was down and, and smile at me when I was unsure, right? I had another colleague uh, who was also a sixth grade teacher at a different school that was in a very toxic, dysfunctional grade level team. Nobody talked to him. He was on his own. Da, 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 da. I promise you I was a better teacher because of the network of relationships I had around myself at that school. I was a better teacher. And therefore, I was able to add more value. Your readers can't see this when I'm doing these weird air quotes, which are annoying, I know, and hard to tell in a podcast, but here I go, where I promise I added more value, right, to my students 
than my colleague, not because he was any worse of a teacher than me or had worse training or anything like that. Not at all. It had to do with the fact that I had these social supports around me. Mm-hmm. So how in, how in all that is wonderful in this world can we think that individuals alone can sort of manage this? If I have X, X, like access to expertise and knowledge and support, I'm going to do better. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get to go to college. I'm going to get to do all these amazing things. What social network theory does is enables us to map out these sets of relationships, right? So maybe some of your listeners have seen these little dots and lines, or we can share them Mm -hmm. at some point if people are interested. And I can go into a school system and map out those sets of relationships. And then I can actively work to disrupt those that aren't supportive to getting work done. So I'm, both of you are familiar, you've worked in education, you know there's people that are isolated, right? And from my way of thinking, we're not accessing their social and human capital to help our collective mission, which is to help all of our kids improve. So imagine if we can disrupt that. Imagine if we ask questions in a social system of how do we make sure everybody feels like they belong? How do we make sure everybody is connected? Because then we have access to all this expertise that otherwise was going to waste, quite frankly, right? So social network theory helps us to map out, to visualize, to track how these relationships change over time. It also helps us to identify rich points where we can intervene and make a difference. It also helps us to understand what flows in a network, right? So to give you a a practical, fun example, like you can think think about your own friends. Listeners, think about your own friends for a second. Uh, and there's probably like a gossip network in your own friend area. You were like, oh, I'm just going to turn to uh, Bettina because she always knows all the great gossip, right? She's a a hub in the gossip network. And generally, if I want to know what gossip is moving around, I'll connect with her, right? Mm -hmm. So all of you probably have those people, or it could just be that I'm American and a horrible human being, so we gossip all the time. Um, and imagine the same is true in a school, that uh, Mrs. Taylor has like a lot of rich knowledge around reading comprehension. And if you can access Ms. Taylor, you ha- are suddenly connected to a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Absent that relationship, you are therefore have less capital that you can spend in supporting your own students. And then we can think about this moving out from the school to an entire system and in some of the work we're doing now to hundreds of thousands of people and their sets of interactions. It's just fascinating. And I, when, when I first came across your work and when I hear you talk about it I just want to go away and get a giant piece of paper and my my colored pens and and kind of have a go because I just think it's fascinating that we can that we can do that and that gives us that kind of information and you know thinking about it from my experience um I was also um, an educational psychologist as well and I think that would have been such a fascinating thing to take to our work with schools across a local authority But also now in Scotland, we have regional improvement collaboratives, which is which are groups of local authorities. Um, And I think that would be a fascinating, I don't know if it's an exercise or a toolkit for them to look at the social networks 
And then I'd want to do it across Scotland as well, but I could get carried away. <laughs> yeah, but but this is the I think this is the right thinking. Okay, I'm biased, but <laughs> I, I mean I think if we're in this space of relationships and we generally believe that, then this is a to me, this is a natural and logical like mm -hmm. step that we would take. And so here's weird fun fact. So oftentimes, you know, we'll go and I'll talk about this kind of work with interested folks. And uh and inevitably, I'll get a school leader that will say, uh, or a teacher leader that will say, okay, I'm just going to go and like figure out everyone who's connected to everybody else, right? So they kind of do that individual exercise. It turns out, let's do a little guessing game here. We'll do a prediction. What do you think, how accurate do you think the average person is in sort of mapping out a social system? Like, Let's go 0% means like they're horrible. They didn't even know that Sarah was in the school to 100%. They know the sets of relationships between everybody uh, in the school. So let's just do a little guessing game. Let's take your guesses. What do you think, Sarah? What's, what percentage would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm tempted to go for 50% because I'm hedging my yeah. bet. So I'm going to yeah. go for 50%. <laughs> All right, 50%. So here's a here's a, a bet hedger. Excellent, 50%. And Billy, what about you? I'll, I'll raise you and um, I think I'm probably wrong, but I'd like to go higher. So I'll go 60, 65. 65%. Excellent. So this, is, this, is a, this is a school leader who's mapping yeah. out the social. Yeah, I'll go 65. Yeah. 65. And, yeah. and also this, this works in other kinds of spaces, but since we're talking about schools, we'll talk about other work I'm doing in breastfeeding later, which I think you'll find <laughs> interesting. Um, so let's give the listeners a moment just to shout out into space. And so people will just think you're that crazy person with your headphones on shouting at other people. So welcome to 85% of the American population. Okay, good. So the actual number is about 30%, mm. which means that for the most part, people are not so great about mapping out their social field. You're pretty good about knowing who you go to. You're pretty good about knowing who some, maybe some of the central folks are, and maybe you're pretty good about knowing who might be isolated. Otherwise than that, you're wrong seven out of 10 times. And this is an important thing to keep in mind. And of course, to be clear, this is a degrees. Some people are enormously accurate at perceiving, perceiving and acting on social fields. And by the way, just side note, those folks are enormously successful in organizations typically. They, they can see what's happening, see the sets of relationships. They could be strategic about relationships and you know these people. There are some people that are just horrendous at this. You also know those people. Like they don't seem to give a damn about relationships. It's not that important. It looks, they, they've got a job to do. They're putting their head down and they're doing their thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it turns out we're not so good about being able to map out our own social fields. And this goes back to something you asked and Billy asked earlier about partnerships. And this is where I think the potential of partnerships really is. So I'm, I can help you map out your social field, mm -hmm. school district or local authority or a big regional area or, you know, worldwide web, like we can help you do that because you're not so good at doing it on your own. Right. And so the power of these relationships is really quite important. And the power of partnership and helping to expand those is really important. So, so one message I have for folks that might be thinking about doing this is excellent, like encourage that and get a buddy, 
to help you do it. Mm -hmm. um, get a buddy who isn't going to feel like uh, you're evaluating them because you don't have X amount of relationships, right? Because people put all this normative stuff on, oh, this person only has three relationships and this person has five, so therefore they're better. And that's not necessarily the case, right? Like five crappy relationships <laughs> turns out to be really problematic. And if you have two really good ones, then you're doing okay, right? So we have to be more nuanced, I think, about our relationships. But yeah, weird fun fact, 30%. No, I, I did suspect it would be lower. Um, I wonder then what you would advise uh, people in any organization and well, let's take a school because that's the context we tend to talk about. How, how could they apply? What are the benefits of applying the knowledge they would gain from engaging more in social network theory, understanding those relationships and where there's lack of relationships? What would be the benefits and, and how do they start to, if people haven't thought about it, how do they start to engage? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, in the first place, I think one of the most critical things is just, and this is a step we often overlook, right, is to get a base level of understanding and belief in the power and importance of relationships. Okay. There's a ton of work around network science and what we know about relationships, both the quantity and the quality of them. There's a whole bunch of science behind it, empirical evidence in education and beyond. So number one, let's establish the fact that relationships are really important. Secondly, let's establish the fact that we have an enormous and growing evidence base in this space. And let's also establish the fact that this isn't some soft and fluffy kinds of things. This is actually hard science in ways that are gonna help us. So first, it's a mind shift, mindset shift, uh, which seems an obvious thing, but actually we all three of us have plenty of evidence and probably your listeners have plenty of evidence where it hasn't been taking place. So, got to shift people's minds. Once their minds are shifted, then we can start thinking about experiences they can have. So here's, um, here's one that some of your uh, listeners can draw upon. So it, it's from this Latin phrase that I'm going to butcher. So let's just all agree that we're going to butcher this and good luck digging up somebody that still speaks Latin to correct me. <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody, somebody is going to make a comment on your podcast around how this moron can't pronounce this correctly, but it's basically tertius iungens. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Uh, you can Google around and look at it and then correct me. Um, but basically it translates to the third that joins. Okay. So let me give you a very complex, high level academic description of this. Let's all think about Star Trek for a second. Uh, and so we can think about kind of some of the main characters in Star Trek. I'm just going to highlight a few of these. And at this point, I'm sure I'm putting some percentage of your audience in a deep sleep. So just consider this the relaxing moment of the podcast. And then come back in in about a minute after I'm done explaining this. So Star Trek, you know who you are out there in listener land. Um, let's take... Bones, he was the doctor. Remember how a little grouchy. And let's take Spock, right? The Vulcan, very rational person. And Bones, the doctor, and Spock, this Vulcan, they had kind of a, a strained relationship, right? Like the doctor was always frustrated at Spock for being so rational. And, and the Spock could never understand the doctor who just seemed to operate in kind of impulsive and spontaneous ways. So together they didn't mix so well, right? But when you enter Captain Kirk into the mix, suddenly 
the third that joins those two and the three of them became better together, right? So that's the third that joins. You take two people, you add in a third, you bring them together and suddenly they're more than the sum of their parts. So the thing, okay, so welcome back from your nap readers in case you <laughs> zoned out for that or people that are under a certain age, welcome back. Um, the thing that you can do to make that come to life in a really simple way is to invite a third when you have a meeting. That's it. It's that simple. And so people are like, oh, but what if the person doesn't know about the content or what we're talking about? In fact, it's better if they don't. Then they're not encumbered with a bunch of pre, uh, with assumptions and pre-thoughts as to what the thing should be. And what you've done then is you've taken a dyadic relationship between two people, right? So then you got one tie and now you've added a third and now you've added two other ties in that relationship just by adding one other person. Triads that I'm talking about are the building blocks of networks. If you look at networks, strong networks that build over time, you'll see tons of evidence about these triads. So one practical thing you can do, although this has taken me 50 minutes to explain this, is simply invite somebody to join to come with you. That's a small thing, practical thing you can do. Second practical thing, let's think about when you want to populate like a school leadership team, right? Most leaders in most schools right now, they're trying to distribute leadership and to think about bringing folks together because we know collectively we can you know, make some good, better decisions that way. So one thing to do is to just send out a simple survey to everybody in the school and say, who do you turn to for advice around instructional practices, whatever it is you wanna do, right? And what that's gonna do is it's gonna bring back a bunch of names and I promise you in your school of you know, 20 to 50 people, there's gonna be about five people or so that a lot of people name. Invite them to be on your leadership team. So in other words, the way we traditionally do it is we say, give me a third grade teacher, give me a fifth grade teacher, give me a sixth grade teacher, right? right? We, we go by formal position. And while that's useful at times, it's not clear to me that those are always the best folks to move messages and to have their fingers on the pulse of what's going on in the school, right? So part of our work together has to be divorcing formal position, right? Just because you're called the leader doesn't mean you're a leader with actual informal leadership roles, which means there are people in your systems that people, other folks are turning to and they're influential. And if you're a school leader or a teacher leader listening to this podcast, first of all, thank you. And secondly, all of you have probably had the experience where you've done this great presentation. Um, Billy, I'm looking at you because it sounds like you're also a practicing school leader right now. You've done this great presentation. You've got fancy PowerPoints. You brought the right uh, tea in. Everybody's happy. And you're just feeling good about yourself. Your self-esteem through the roof. You feel so excited they're going to actually do this thing. And then you walk out to the parking lot to see your car and you see little clusters of teachers meeting. It turns out that's the real meeting that's taking place. <laughs> and You've probably been on both sides of that. And that's where the real decisions are being made. So what I'm trying to do in my work is to say, let's understand that informal world because way more decisions are being made in that space than we know. Two things coming through strongly there for me. One is you went to the original series rather than the next generation of Star Trek. And again, yeah. that'll, that'll make sense to some and, and not many. 
I haven't figured out the I haven't figured out the Picard analogy yet. So I'm just I'm going to try to do this for a lot of different. Uh, yeah, maybe you have one you can help. Yeah. No, 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 not at the top of my head. But when you figure it out, let me know. Um, yeah. And I suppose the other thing is that more increasingly, um, I've been head teacher for eight years now, and increasingly I realise that my job, um, and I'm going to just throw it out there and then explain it. My job is to get out the way and let the right people um, be in the way. So a, a great example, um, we recently just started back for the session and the best session was where a group of teachers presented to the, to the team about the different collaborative opportunities they'll have um, to talk about learning and teaching book groups, support for practitioner, practitioner inquiry, et cetera. And while I do like to think that the inspirational presentation I gave the day before about our purpose and our direction. Um, it, it was that, you know, that's what inspired the conversations in the car park. I'm under no illusions. Yeah, I mean, I think, and this is another thing we've got to help leaders to understand is that that doesn't make you less of a leader. It makes you a better leader, right? Um, and I think also, Billy, just getting a little bit of a sense of you, I, I think we can't talk about this without talking about the importance of trust that we have between and amongst ourselves, right? Like yeah. we've got to lean into building this sense of individual and collective trust. Absent that, there's not much we can do, right? And if you think about like trust, it's in, in the, let me put it in the, in the opposite. The lack of trust is costly. In other words, in low trust environments, transaction costs are quite expensive, right? They take a lot longer. You have to have policies and rules in place because nobody, everyone's afraid somebody else is going to screw them over. So, so the act of engagement is a very expensive one, right? And it takes a long time. High trust in high trust environments, the cost of interaction is quite low. And because the cost of interaction is quite low, you can actually do more and go farther. And so the, 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 the trick here, I think, is that I think that vulnerability is the new leadership capacity as we move into this new space. And so as a leader, Billy, when you sort of step back, you're being vulnerable. You're saying, I'm going to trust that these are the right folks. I'm going to trust that this message goes on. And you symbolically and practically signal to everyone, I have trust in all of you as the professionals to do the work. That's a powerful leadership move that probably to you came um, second nature, but that doesn't necessarily come second nature to all leaders, right? So how do we engage that conversation and build those opportunities for vulnerability to flourish in ways that help us all to grow? Well, there's that keyword again, Sarah. It comes up in so many of these conversations, doesn't it? Yeah, trust just keeps coming up time and time again as I guess the glue that holds so many things together and gives us the space to, to do the work we need to do um, in the way that we need to do it. Yeah, yeah. This, you know, doubling down. So in the social network space, we think about the quantity of relationships. So that's yeah. what gives us that cool social network structure and those cool maps. And we think about the quality of the relationships. That means, you know, our ability to have trust and sense of belonging, et cetera. And you've got to operate on both levels. Yeah. You know, one, having a really nicely structured network is no good if everyone's completely distrusting everybody else, right? Like you can have a network of terrorists. And so 
we've got to really be thoughtful around, you know, how do we create the conditions for people to interact with one another in which they feel a high level of psychological safety. Yeah. Google, Google just completed a really interesting study mm -hmm. called the Aristotle study. And what they found, so what they're trying to figure out is like what makes for an effective team, basically. Mm -hmm. And they found five things that made for an effective team. I doubt I can remember all of them. Um, but the big takeaway here is that they rank ordered these things. And so it was things like dependability and integrity and impact and meaning and things like that we've all heard, mm -hmm. right? Far and away, the most important quality for effective teams, effective teams being like, I feel a part of something, we accomplish things together, right? Far and away, the most important one was psychological safety, mm -hmm. that people felt safe to take a risk, that they wouldn't be uh, harassed or harangued or made fun of or chastised for what they do or torn down. Number one, way more important than anything else. And yet, if you look at the way that we operate, that's often the last thing that we think about, mm -hmm. right? We're more about let's get the structure in place. Let's make sure we have folks that are turning in the minutes from their meeting. Let's make sure we have this. Those things, while important, are not nearly as important as this idea about psychological safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, how do you build psychological safety or how do you nurture that in, a, in your setting? Yeah, I think you'll have to come back for the second podcast. But I, no, I'm just kidding. I, I think one of the things you have to do is you've got to model this. Mm. You've got to be willing to be vulnerable in front of folks. And I'm not talking about like laying out your deepest, darkest problems with your relationships with your mother, although maybe that's something we can do that in the third podcast after the food. <laughs> one, one. Um, but rather being vulnerable about not knowing. Leaders and teachers find themselves in this position that with all this training and experience and, and education is one of the most educated workforces in any industry, those folks feel like they should know, right? Yeah. And I will just speak very honestly, I spend a lot of my life, even as an academic with high degrees and in a good institution, like I spend a bunch of my time not knowing and a bunch of my time unsure of the next step that I'm going to take. And a, a significant amount of my, my time feeling like I'm an imposter or a fraud, mm. right? Um, and so my hunch is that I'm not alone in that. Um, by the way, this is where you both jump in and say, of course not. We feel like exactly the same way. And your readers yeah. should be putting in the comments, and we always feel it. But <laughs> when, do we, when do we talk about this stuff that we're like, we're not sure? Like, mm. we don't know the next step always. And, and sometimes we feel like we're in this position where we should know and we don't know. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess I'm saying that's an okay thing to share because when we do that, it creates the safe space for others to do that. And when we do that, we're suddenly open and vulnerable to each other. And by doing that, we're, we open up our sense of caring and, and, and concern and empathy and compassion and kindness, all of that stuff we know is so critical. Yeah. And I think maybe that's one thing the pandemic gave us almost was permission to, to not know because we hadn't done it before. So all of a sudden we didn't have the answers. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know how we were going to do it. We, we had to work it out together. And I think it maybe gave us that as maybe one of the benefits of it. But will we hold on to it is perhaps the other question. I hope we do. Yeah. I, like I said, I think we're 
we got to really step up our game in this next short term here. Uh, it makes me feel so good when I hear like leaders like Billy doing exactly that. Cause I think, but my hunch is he was doing this pre pandemic too, but um, continuing to do that, I think is going to be important. There's a, there's a quote by um, Teddy Roosevelt and it's, I'm not going to remember this correctly, but basically it's, it's something like, you know, being in the, that what we ought to be honoring are people in the arena. Mm-hmm. In other words, like there's a whole lot of people shouting from the sidelines, oh, you people in education, you should have seen this, or you should have done this, or you should have had, mm-hmm. you know, technology ready, or you should have tons of like backseat drivers, you know, Monday morning quarterbacks. I don't know what the equivalent is in football in the UK, but whatever that is, mm-hmm. um, that are shouting from the grandstands, like, oh, should have done this. Should have done that. My, what I've been saying to leaders is that it's the people that are in the arena whose faces are marred with blood and sweat and tears. Those are the ones we need to be raising up. Yeah. You know, trying when we're not, it's easy to do something. We have a good idea what the outcome is. It is really hard and scary to engage when we're not sure what the end game is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think we just have to shift our focus to the people that are in the arena doing yeah. the work. And that's educators all over the world. And I'm just so proud to be a product of public education, as well as dedicated 31 years of my life to public mm-hmm. education. And, and I hope all the educators that are listening, like, take a moment and take some pride. This is been a difficult time for everybody and it's been a really difficult time for educators who are doing their level best to make a difference in kids lives and we need to sing that loud and proud and and not be afraid to say we were in the arena where were you Mm -hmm. absolutely 100% agree with that but before we finish off though I have to come back to Twitter because I know that lots of our listeners are on Twitter and use Twitter. So I'm intrigued. You mentioned Twitter at the beginning. So what what's going on with Twitter? What's your work? What are you looking at? Um, so we're doing some super interesting work in this space. It's, mm-hmm. So in a social network, we would talk about because school has yeah. been the main context. Like, you know, you think about those sets of interactions with those people. What we've been doing recently is looking at educational leaders at a much wider scale. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to answer the question, where do educational leaders go in virtual space to get new practices, et cetera? And so we turned to Twitter and we've been mapping out the sets of interactions between educational leaders for the last like three years. Mm-hmm. So this, this is looking at hundreds of thousands of people and their sets of interactions. And you can see communities being developed, um, people are sharing practices and some really wonderful qualities. So I know the rap is like, it's a bunch of trolls and people sharing cat videos and you know who you are. Um, but it turns out that like when you do analysis on this longitudinal data, there's an enormous amount of community building that's happened and an enormous amount of giving without the expectation of any reciprocation. People freely sharing their practices, sharing their struggles, sharing their ideas and others doing the same and support. And we've been able to analyze that and show that there are communities of support and care and knowledge exchange that are happening in these social, in these social media spaces. So I know that's not the wrap. It's more sexy to talk about all the crap that moves through Twitter, but actually there's a lot of support that's going on for educational leaders. And this is directly connected to this other project we have underway, which I know won't seem connected, but is deeply related is around breastfeeding. 
So we've been looking at not just the sets of relationships, um, mm -hmm. but looking at how misinformation moves through social networks. And we honed in on breastfeeding because I'm a, a scientific advisory board member of a big research um, program around breastfeeding because they wanted a social scientist. I argued that some of what we need to understand around breastfeeding is not just the milk and the chemicals in the milk, et cetera, but how it plays out in the social space. So one of the things we've been able to do is to track the amount of misinformation that's moving. And we can actually identify where that misinformation is coming from and be able to disrupt it in some ways. And if we look at COVID and what's going on with COVID, there's an enormous amount of misinformation. I mean, I know myself living here in the States, I was drinking Clorox bleach because my president <laughs> said that that would be the right thing to do to get, and look, I didn't get COVID, so clearly it worked okay. Um, and so there's an enormous amount of misinformation and misinformation moves through, we would argue through social networks and social media. So we're trying to understand both the sets of relationships as well as the content that's moving in and among these networks. So yeah, it's stay tuned for more on that. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, Alan, thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Um, okay. I've been dying to talk to you for years now. <laughs> so it's been great to have the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper into your work and understand it a bit differently. Um, and yeah, just a massive thank you for your enthusiasm as well for the, for the conversation and really practical ideas and things that people can, can consider and take away and, and reflect on. So thank you from both of us. So um, before we finish, we have three questions for you. We finish all yeah. our podcasts with these questions. The first one is, um, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Yeah, it was so interesting to me sent these questions. First of all, I love these questions. I think they're, I don't know, they're really, I don't know, they make me smile. So this is a, a good thing because it gave me a chance to reflect on, on what I wanted to be. And actually, I wanted to be an astronaut is really what I wanted to be. And um, despite the fact that I was a goofy kid with red hair and glasses, I really desperately wanted to be an astronaut. And I remember being so impressed with all things astronaut. And I also distinctly remember, because um, remember my parents grew up working class and, and weren't parented that great themselves. I also distinctly remember when I was misbehaving, my dad would threaten to call Houston and tell the <laughs> astronauts that I was being a bad little boy, which essentially is a horrible thing because it paired like this fear with my own. It was a, that, so like not good parenting practice, but it was it showed my passion about wanting to be an astronaut. And so I'm still completely fascinated by all things space. So, so yeah, astronaut. Superb. I think you're our first uh, astronaut. Oh, yeah. Uh, lots of interesting, lots of interesting aspirations, but you, you might be the first one who wanted to. It's not too late, of course, if you've got a, you know, billionaire hedge fund somewhere you can speak to. Yeah. One I mean, I did, I have spent 30 years in education, so, you know, I've socked away billions uh, because <laughs> I chose a very high paying career. Yeah. Speak to Richard Branson or Bezos or someone. Right. Um, Maybe they're listening to this podcast. If so, I'm, <laughs> turns out I'm available. You're available. Well, Alan, this, the second question uh, relates to what you're reading. Now, we know you've, you've written lots. You're a writer. 
Um, what do you like to read and what you're reading at the moment? Yeah, so also a really cool question. So um, one of the things that I think has enabled me to be really successful as a scholar, uh, to whatever degree you measure that, is that I'm just interested in a bunch of weird shit <laughs> and how all of that stuff comes together. Now you're gonna have to put like a caution bad language at the outset of your <laughs> podcast, like children should be aware. Um, so because I have a wide variety of interests, which basically means I can't focus, I, I'm reading three things at the same time. So I just tell you about these three things that I'm reading in no particular order. Uh, so the first one is this book by Scott Page called The Diversity Bonus, which came out, I think, in 2017. And basically the argument there is that like um, the shorthand of it is that diverse perspectives and diverse background and experiences actually enhance teams to be able to do even more amazing things. So like there's it's not just diversity for diversity's sake. There's real strength in diversity and and you know, being really open to that is actually good for the individual and for the collective. So kind of a cool book. Uh, it's more of a worky book. Um, the second book uh, I'm reading is because I, I told you we made this impulse buy. So I'm reading Valley of the Shining Stone, which if this diversity um, book is sort of much broad, this is really narrow. It's about this area that we moved to in New Mexico called Abiquiu which is about an hour and 15 minutes north of Santa Fe. No, I'm not, not mispronouncing Albuquerque. It's really named Abiquiu. And it was the home to Giorgio O'Keefe. And the book is about um, the intersection of cultures in that space. So uh, really looking at the indigenous uh, folks that live there and still live there, the, you know, the Spanish coming and the Anglos and that interesting intersection between them, as well as the land itself. And then... Honestly, I think the book that I sort of rediscovered again in some ways uh, is The Little Prince. Um, and I, I just think there's so many amazing lessons inside of that book that I didn't truly appreciate uh, for a long time. And there's just this one thing that, that The Little Prince says that just sticks with me, especially for what we're talking about today. And he says something like, uh, it is only with the heart that one can see rightly what is essential is invisible to the eye. And I think that's at the root of what we've been talking about today. So yeah, so three, three books. So yeah. Yeah, that last bit really resonates. Um, and perhaps connects with this final question, which is, do you have a quote or a message that you would like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, there's one that I, there's a quote that I use for every one of my presentations. And I think it's, it's particularly for me personally, and I think for our world, it's, it's really important. And this is a quote that was written in 1963. And it's a quote that was written by Dr. Martin Luther King. And Dr. King in 1963 was sitting in a Birmingham, Alabama jail for standing up for what he believed in, you know, going against very strong entrenched power structures. And he writes this beautiful letter. And I'm just going to just read out this one quote, um, because I think it kind of captures what I hope to be about in terms of doing work that's concerned about equity and justice. And so Dr. King writes, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, 
tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And to me, being concerned about social networks, being concerned about marginalized groups, being concerned about our own humanity and our own humility, this idea about a, a network of mutuality, I think is quite a powerful one. And so, you know, recognizing our connections and interconnections are incredibly important. And sometimes we forget about that as we're breezing through our days, but mm -hmm. this is a time for us to reconnect in deep and meaningful ways and to reconnect to our own communities and our own selves and our families and, and the people we work with and have the privilege to serve. So mm -hmm. that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Um, a perfect way to end the conversation and end the podcast but hopefully not our final conversation together we've still got the food and wine podcast to do and I'm sure we can see the third one as well but just uh, once again a massive massive thank you from both of us for for joining us today Thank you for listening, folks. We really value you taking the time and space to join us, and we hope that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again. Stay safe and take good care.